Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast. In our Week in IndyCar series, our guest this week, Brian Barnhart, recording our Q&A session here, though, actually before the man himself and the man myself have connected. Been a very busy week for Brian, actually returning from vacation, jumping right into work at Harding Steinbrenner Racing. So I'm actually not sure whether your Q&A episode here is going to go up first or if Brian's interview on the Week in IndyCar will go up first. Just going to have to play it by ear a little bit, which has been the norm of late. So thank you once again for being patient as my schedule. It, I don't really have a schedule, do I? It just, it, I'm going to invoke our man Juan Montoya. It is what it is. It fluctuates. Uh, yeah, most days have been pretty busy running around to various appointments and all kinds of things. So doing lots of trying to fit things in where I can. And this is one of them. So we're going to kick things off here for our Week in IndyCar listener Q&A with our usual huge thanks to Cooper Tires, also to the Justice Brothers, and a, a wish of health and recovery and such for a beloved member of the Justice family. Also say huge thanks to TorontoMotorsports.com and their ongoing, not just engagement, but the fun stuff that we get to do. I just sent over a finalized design I've been working on with my man Roger Warwick, who does all of our cartoon art, our event posters, our you name it, stickers, t-shirts, mugs, drink koozies. Those are all from the frayed and problematic mind of Roger Warwick. Roger and I have been working on an idea. Actually, I think I might have mentioned it I don't know if I mentioned it first in passing a bit of a throwaway thing on the podcast, but one of our listeners, Andre Good, also sent in some things referring to the same items. So have Roger, who's done the design, send it over to our friends at TorontoMotorsports.com. They're going to print a few of those t-shirts, and once I get them in hand, we'll announce them, and I think you're going to want them if you have equally as skewed a brain as myself and Roger. So big thanks to TorontoMotorsports.com. We're going to come back to them in just a sec. And then also ongoing love fest with Bell Racing Helmets USA. Before we get to your questions, and as we have been doing for a little while now, been running a whomever's question gets the most likes on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page. And that page alone, because I really don't have the ability, mental bandwidth to track all the places that questions are posted to see whose is the most popular. But we've been doing this each week. Your question, the one that gets the most likes when I send out the weekly call for questions on our MP podcast Facebook page, that person has been getting a T-shirt, a drink koozie, I think some stickers, I don't know what all else, but basically a collection of good stuff from torontomotorsports.com Generally centered around the week in IndyCar, Simon Rafi, one of our recent winners, sent me a great photo wearing the t-shirt, drinking something with the koozie perfectly installed. And so this week's winner, the one who got the most likes, Tyler Graff. This is for our guest, Colton Herta, who was a real blast last week. He asked, Colton, 
Who's a bigger inspiration? Jimmy Bly or Joe Tonto? To which Colton said, who? So, Tyler, I love your question. I hope many of you loved it as well. A reference to the world's worst racing movie, Driven, and the two main characters. So, had to get Colton up to speed a little bit on the reference and then implore him to watch. So, thanks to Tyler for the question that was perfect, even if it didn't land the way we had hoped. But hopefully we recovered a little bit. So, send me a DM, Facebook, Twitter, uh, through the marshallpruittpodcast.com site and our little contact page, whatever works for you. Send me your address or your email address or something, and I'll get you connected with our pals at torontomotorsports.com and get some weekend indie car or whatever other type of MP podcast gear and goodies you might like. And be sure, again, if you have sent in a question and you want some free stuff, uh, implore your friends to hit the old Marshall Pruitt podcast Facebook page and like the living poop out of it because that's the way it's done. You can game the system is what I'm telling you. Free things that you can get just through a little bit of effort or if you just pose a really awesome question and people react to it, I'm going to use a very Californian word, organically. All right, let's get going here. We're going to start off with I don't know if you heard about it. There was this thing called an arrow screen that was tested. Nobody reacted to it. Nobody had a comment about it. Nobody said a word. Most people said they, for for those who did take the time to respond, said they loved how it looked, said it was amazing, best thing ever, and they wanted to know where they could get one for personal use at home. Of course, compared to impersonal use at home. Um, Let's go with Joshua Ponce. Says MP, here's my take on the aero screen that IndyCar is testing now. Hashtag me personally. Awesome use of my most hated phrase here, Joshua. The aero screen may not be very pretty and or complement the design of the Delar DW12 in the UAK18 bodywork, but at least IndyCar is taking the steps forward in safety systems to protect the drivers, and that's the most important part. So far, as in when I'm writing this, Twitter comments are going around saying it's ugly, trash, looks too bulky. Says, I remember when F1 debuted the Halo and everyone went in the same direction. I can't wait to see how the 2022 cars will look with the aero screen from Red Bull Advanced Technologies as that design will be incorporated. And who knows, it may look sleeker. Also going to roll in another one here, a bit of a counter to that. And I really appreciate the opening of the show here with some things for us to ponder this comes from thomas gross he says i know you've made it clear what you think of people's opinions on the windshield in my book something that looks that wide from the front can't have the sleek name of an arrow screen i think you got something there thomas maybe the winds the windscreen windshield i'm not sure it says but my question to you would be when do you think it crosses the line between safety and taking away from the tradition and product We can all agree that slowing the cars by 100 miles an hour would do way more for safety than any windshield ever could. But clearly, that ruins the product. Is adding fenders crossing the line? How about enclosing the cockpit completely? For hashtag me personally, I think an Indy car should be open cockpit and open wheels. All right, so let's start off here floating around with the 
items from Joshua and Thomas would say that, Joshua, your point about folks becoming acclimatized to the halo, that's been a general refrain that I believe is going to be the case. I think as we've seen as well, while there's an expectation for the majority of fans, it's, it's a bit of a assumption that it will be the majority, but that's what I think. Uh, I think the majority of fans will at some point, as you demonstrate, like the Halo, just become accustomed to it. Not saying those who dislike it will come to like it, but I do think that like many things, it'll just become like furniture in the room. You've seen it so much. You know what it is. It doesn't stand out as the big thing that you hate as the halo was for whatever period of time before it just became the norm. Definitely agree as well. Have shared the same opinion for a little while now that when we get to the next chassis, we still don't know if it's going to be 22. Some of you might have heard me mention on last week's Q&A show in my sit-down with Jay Fry about an hour's worth on all things technical. Many of those items that will be in the next issue of Racer Magazine did say they're still a little bit on the fence as to whether a brand-new chassis is going to be here in 22. So just throwing that up front here. Don't honestly remember where I mentioned it in the show last week, but we'll just say to Joshua that when the new car arrives, whatever year that is, I would believe, I have to believe, the aero screen itself will be less of a standout item than it is now. It only makes sense for that to be the case, just for a couple of basic reasons. With what we have now, it's dropping something on top of a car that was never designed to have it. So there are built-in limitations on its looks, on its placement, on its everything. From what I've seen, having watched the original Aero screen, the one that didn't really stand up in tests, how that was attached to the car, looking at how this one is bonded to the vehicle, truly become a structural piece that bolts on. I'm very impressed with what IndyCar has done just from an engineering and mechanical assembly standpoint. How they've done this, the way that it is integrated into the car, truly impressive. That's separate from whether one might like how it looks or doesn't. Just strictly talking about, hey, this thing no one envisioned. Uh, Arrow screen wasn't even a, a word I think any of us knew back in 2011 when the DW12 prototype was testing for the first time at Mid-Ohio with Dan Weldon behind the wheel and Brian Herta Autosport running the car. This thing was never intended to have such a thing. The fact that they have been able to incorporate it, blend it into the vehicle in a way that while it might not, well, I shouldn't say might not, while it does not look as if it was intended to be there from the outset, which we know it wasn't, the manner in which it has been incorporated does impress me. Just you look at how it was done to go, oh, that's that's 
that's some pretty good improvisation. Where I think things are going to take a more positive turn, Joshua. But I don't want to set too high of an expectation. Is can guarantee you the next chassis will probably start in terms of drawing with the aero screen. Instead of looking to do the base tub itself and then how the aero screen fits into that, I believe they're going to look at the exact opposite. That's how I would approach things, as I hear Rosie, our cat, complaining in the background. Uh, This is something that is so foundational to the vehicle. Uh, I definitely think that they are going to look at how that is held in place, how it ties into the bulkhead basically the dash bulkhead from the outset ties into the roll hoop area rear bulkhead just i really do think the next chassis is going to be designed aero screen first now where i think that will improve lines is they will have the ability then to blend the arc of the top of the chassis down to the tip of the nose to fit the aero screen to have it something that looks like it flows from tip of the nose to the trailing edge of the aero screen that is an ability they will have where there's a little bit of like i said i don't want to present this like ah it's just going to be this beautiful smooth thing that looks like a jet fighter and it's going to be the best thing ever it's going to look like F-22 pilots on the ground. That's what this car is going to be. The practical limitation that is being encountered right now is they can only lay back the aero screen, the actual, it's not glass, it's a polycarbonate such and such, but I'll just call it glass because it's easier to say that over and over again. They can only lay the glass back at so far of an angle. And at the angle it's at right now, that is where the biggest field of view through it is presented. As it gets laid back farther and farther, that is where that window starts to narrow and narrow and narrow and tighten drastically. And all of a sudden, (laughs) you have people kind of looking through their fingers. And that is obviously not what we want. So... That's the practical thing that I don't know how that will be overcome. I would say that if the aero screen, I don't know the exact angle that it's at right now, I'll need to ask, but if it could be laid back 15 more degrees, 20 degrees, I think folks would react in a totally different way. I think it would look more sleek, more jet fighter canopy style. Right now, it's a little upright and bulky. Where I don't know if there's going to be a change in technology somehow. Again, I don't have the answers to it, but is there something that could be done with the 22-ish, 2023, who knows, new chassis design that allows it to be at a steeper angle, fall back more, look more like a jet fighter? If they can... I think we'd have something that was rather amazing. If they can't and they are stuck with that 
more upright angle that we have right now, um, I think it's definitely going to be upon the designers to work how the front of the chassis, everything in front of it, just from an angles and lines and whatnot standpoint, how it integrates. What we have now is a chassis looking at it from the side that falls away pretty rapidly to a low nose. Would raising the nose, I'm always a big fan of raised noses compared to lowered noses, would raising the nose help reduce some of the stark contrast instead of having diverging lines with the nose following away, the arrow screen coming up would having say a a flatter line in front of the arrow screen help. I don't know, but I do know these are things that they will be working on is really the foundation of the car for Thomas's question in point here. It's a great one. And it's been asked, I don't know how many times throughout many, many decades is going to this, changing from this to that in IndyCar. I guess we could also extend this out to NASCAR and F1 and a lot of stick and ball sports too, probably. What is the line of maintaining tradition in the overall, quote, quality of the product? Can't disagree with anything there, just in terms of the, is does this need to be a consideration? Does this have value? Of course it does. The reason folks have responded so passionately about the aero screen is because they love IndyCar, obviously. They feel the aero screen's addition takes away from the quality of those visuals, makes it too ugly, makes it too, again, uh, all the things mentioned, you know, ugly, trash, bulky, etc. Totally get all that. The thing for me, Thomas, that I struggle with is this is something that we have known is coming. This is something we've seen in one or two form or in two forms now, but if you followed any of the original Red Bull aero screen testing a couple of years ago in F1, this is not a surprise. We have known if we use Formula One as a guide now for, what, two years, two-ish years, with a halo, that filtering down to Formula Two, this and that, all kinds of lower formula. We even have it here in the U.S., in the uh, Formula U.S., Formula Four, and Formula Three as well. We know that this is the standard, some sort of cockpit protection device to reduce the likelihood of a helmet strike. IndyCar has obviously taken it one step farther and said we need to put something in front of that halo. I get that from a tradition standpoint, you can draw a line in the sand at dozens of points throughout history. Turbocharging? What the hell? I mean, if it if it's not just running on a naturally aspirated V8 or an Offenhauser non-turbo. I mean, what kind of blasphemy is that? Disc brakes? What's wrong with drums? Seat belts? Rear view mirrors? I mean, we could we could run down the list of a lot of things. And I know that not all these are visual. But we can run wings. Boy, I was not alive when wings first came into the Speedway. But having done a lot of research, read a lot of things about it, for a variety of things I have written over the years, 
man, you want to talk about folks absolutely determined to get those off the cars because they're so ugly, because it destroys the sleek, cigar-shaped beauty and visuals. I mean, step back, what, 67, I believe, was the first year, 68, 69. Uh, Again, I apologize, I'm a little fuzzy uh, at the moment, but step back to the early 60s when obviously there was a huge uproar about the move to rear engines. I mean, in fact, we could go back uh, to the, what, early 30s, late 30s, when the very first true rear engine car showed up at the Speedway. Didn't make the show. Uh, but nonetheless, these things, the this is the tradition, this is who we are. It's, a, it's something I struggle with, Thomas. And it's... I say this not specifically limited to the aero screen. But we're in a sport and in a particular series within that sport that for the vast majority of its history was known for advancement. Obviously understand that late 90s advent of the Indy Racing League started moving towards more of a spec mindset know that in 2007 champ car went to a spec chassis as well so even you know the much vaunted cart series and uh, what it turned into in champ car even went that route as well know that we've been spec here for a while chassis wise different engines though but i know that again for modern fans you might only know a time when indycar is more or less spec for some of us who followed it for a little bit longer We've grown up in a time where what we have today is actually the small slice of IndyCar's history. And the true great percentage of its history is one where differences, changes, constant modification was the norm. So when I see the arrow screen come along, knowing it is not a performance device, but a safety device, my mind goes towards two areas. One, it's not that I don't care what it looks like. I have a personal opinion about it. Hashtag me personally doesn't do much for me. Doesn't matter, though. That's why this isn't something that I'm sharing online. I, I, I understand the need for safety, but damn, that thing's ugly. I've read that and I've written in a variety of ways. I've lost track. That's fine. I mean, again, people share opinions, say whatever they say, whatever, you know, just as I do. But for hashtag me personally, that opinion coming out of my mouth is meaningless because it's not a fashion accessory. And so I don't want to say that it doesn't matter what it looks like. If they put a steel garbage can, (laughs) a turret around the cockpit, I mean, it's not as if people would just say, oh, it's great. Who cares? It's in the name of safety. Who cares? Obviously, people care. That's why we've had the big passionate response. What struck me as odd, though, Thomas, is the fact that it's pretty amazing what they've come up with, knowing the limitations they've had to work with. That might not be something that everybody understands. I realize that not everybody has an engineering background or mechanical background. But 
it's something that will serve its purpose. It is something that will inc- vastly increase the percentage likelihood of drivers uh, from a safety standpoint uh, and or fatalities with something coming at or near the cockpit. Uh, to me, that renders the how much I do or don't like how it looks argument moot. It just kicks the legs out from under it. Uh, that's the first part. The second part, just to close on this before we move on to uh, more of your questions, is coming back to the history and tradition standpoint. Coming back to the tradition question, though, Thomas, that's the one where I look at certain things and say, there's no reason for that to change. We should maintain that. This is a silly one, but... Drinking milk, milk in victory lane at Indy. That's a tradition. I realize it hasn't always been that way. I realize there was a minor blip when uh, Emma won for the first time. But nonetheless, all right, there's nothing I can really think of to make that change or need to change. We have vehicles that are open-wheeled. I know that some folks said with the rear wheel guards, the Kardashians in place. This isn't open wheel anymore. Yes, it is. It always was. It's an exaggeration. Needs to be open cockpit. Oh, all we need now is just to seal off the top, and then you got a sports car. No. If you take the time and look back through many, many decades of IndyCar racing, you will see a variety of items placed in front of or around the cockpit, some form of enclosure. We've had truly a truly enclosed car before, the Sumar Special. Realized that that wasn't super successful. But again, it's not as if this is new. You can go back to the 60s, 70s in particular. There were some cars with some very high cockpit. I mean, truly, call it an aero screen. It was there to deflect air and also just regular debris, bugs, and tire marbles and whatnot. But you can go back and find photos without much effort of drivers whose helmets are almost completely surrounded by some form of Lexan plastic or otherwise. This is not brand new. So I guess when I think about the tradition side, Thomas, open wheel, yeah. That would be really bizarre to go away from that. That is the foundation of what we do here. Open cockpit, same thing as well. Be bizarre to do that, to go away from that. But adding an aero screen to improve driver safety so that we should not have to go to any more funerals for stupid things like what killed a couple of friends of mine and And those before that blinded others back in the day and so on and so forth through things just coming straight out of driver's helmet and into or through a driver's helmet. That to me is really the bigger part of IndyCar's tradition. That's our history. I know it hasn't been our most recent history as we've been spec spec or spec-ish for 15, 20 years, but for the 80 plus that preceded it, 
This is the kind of thing that you would expect to see. Evolution, development, improvement, making the car faster, making the drivers safer, making the track safer. We, <laughs> there are constant calls. I'm one who makes them. Track safety here needs to improve. Why isn't there a solution here? What's, why is that allowed to exist? And in some cases, not all, there's action put behind it. This is one of those things just on the car side. And so, yeah, I get that it might not be the most beautiful thing in the world in that many folks bristle at the sight of it. I do expect maybe this, this is the silly thing, and this is what I'll close on here. Maybe I'm silly to expect that most folks can look at that and say, if they don't like it, I don't like it. It's ugly. And then let that go because the humanity comes forth. That's the part that, that's the part I've probably struggled with to process the most. Just the lack of humanity. I get that it's not the most beautiful thing. No argument. Why is it there, though? What's the reason? Well, it's to save lives. Okay. That is the thing to me that makes it, that voids the rest of the conversation. Maybe I'm on an island on this one. Maybe I'm not. But as I look at it, I realize that this is a part of IndyCar's tradition to evolve and improve, make things better. This makes things better. Working around a significant constraint of a car that was never designed to have such a thing. And then realizing that, hey, guess what? No more funerals for silly things hitting drivers in the head. And I realize, of course, there could be very extreme situations. We're not talking about the most insane, looks like a bomb went off type scenario. We're talking about cutting down the routine things, getting at a driver's helmet. Will Power, when I spoke with him last night, as my wife and I were driving home from the VA, told me about a bird that, in theory could have very easily hit his helmet in the test. Uh, says, luckily, and I mean unfortunately for the bird, but luckily for him, it went along the top of the chassis and into the air ducting at the base of the aero screen. And he said some its little feet were found uh, towards the rear of the aero screen. So the little feet got through, but basically the poor little bird was stopped and strained, I guess, a little bit through the venting system. Now, that is something I'm sure IndyCar will look at as well. But if something could come along basically level with the top of the chassis and hit the aero screen and stop, it makes me think that sure could have come out his helmet. And I don't know how much that bird weighed. Might have been, I don't know. I can't tell you. Ounces, a pound, who knows? That's certainly an object, though, at 200-plus miles an hour that you just would not want to hit a driver's helmet. Hopefully that answers most things. As always, please send in more of your questions and opinions on this, and we'll happily present them in next week's show. And if I get enough of them, we might even do a special one. I don't know. This really seems to have a lot of folks riled up, 
And yeah, um, as always, it's your show. So we're going to talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. All righty, then let's go to the regular questions. I guess that implies the first two were irregular. They weren't. They're just, we tend to, by we, I mean me. I got to stop doing that. Why am I picking this up? Race car drivers. Actually, I blame little Al. He's we all the time. Al, how's the car? Well, we, you know, well, is you. Okay. I got to stop doing that. Sorry. It's a non sequitur episode of the Week in IndyCar Q&A with me. We're going to go to the questions that aren't the big topics that take a while to use up front. You might hear a car horn going off outside. There's someone who parks in front of the hospital, which we live in front of, whose car alarm goes off 10 times a day, but every day. So I don't know whose it is. I can't exactly see it, but I want to do bad things to the vehicle because it's annoying. So anyways, sorry. Again, it's a little bit of free form Q&A this week. We're going to go to our pal, Jerry Suduth. Says, Marshall, watching the Joseph Newgarden guy do some demo laps on the Charlotte Roval got me to thinking if IndyCar NASCAR ever did the double, what track would you want it to occur? He says, hashtag me personally. I'd like to see a double at Darlington. Don Gregory add something similar. I saw Newgarden's exhibition run there, and it got me thinking about a potential double header. What says you? Do you think this would be a healthy marriage for IndyCar? Hmm... The real question for me here, Don, if we were thinking sticking at Charlotte on the Roval, would be what kind of crowd would turn out for IndyCar? Happened to put up a story here a day or two ago with IndyCar president Jay Fry saying, loved it, looked great, but haven't spoken with the track about any kind of event, standalone, doubleheader, you name it and posted or grabbed a photo and posted it of the inaugural Visionaire 500 Oval event at Charlotte in 1997, which I happened to be there for competing with the Thomas Knapp Genoa IRL team and good old Greg Ray from Plano, Texas. And we had a huge turnout for the 97 race. It was massive. What I don't know is how many free tickets were involved. What I don't know is how many people actually bought tickets if there was a healthy, healthy giveaway by the track and Humpy Wheeler, I don't know how that crowd was created. If it was natural, people wanted to see IndyCar bought tickets, and that's why it was full, that would give me hope that maybe coming back could be a positive thing. Would say that, at least if we're looking at the Roval, uh, crowd seemed okay, but not great for the NASCAR race. I don't know if bringing in IndyCar and doing a double would change that or not. So that, to me, would be the big question, Don. Um, If there was an interest, would returning to the Charlotte Oval be in IndyCar's best interest? Don't have, well, we've got one, one one-and-a-half-mile oval. Used to be seemingly the only thing we had back in the day. But it add another. I just, again, don't know if there's a real crowd there because I can't foresee the track or IndyCar giving away tens of thousands of tickets to try and make it look full. Or would trying to do the Roval and some sort of combined thing be better? I just don't know if the Roval is loved. 
yet. I know it's amusing to watch from an in-car standpoint, from a crashing standpoint, I guess, for those who are driven by that. But in terms of the people buying tickets to turn up and watch it, bit of a thing that I say almost weekly when we come to the topics of where should IndyCar go? Should they race here? Could they race here? IndyCar cannot afford to compete at places where the grandstands are half full cannot afford to go places where it looks small, powerless, unimportant. And this, to me, is the big question. I don't have an answer for. I like the idea of the Roval, because it did look pretty darn cool from Joseph's in-car laps. He was really attacking hard the last three or four laps. Like that idea, just not sure folks would turn up for it, Don. Uh, coming back to Jerry's question, as for if we were to do a double, where should it be? I think the obvious choice, knowing that Xfinity goes there for its own event a little bit later in the year, would be Road America. So, and I'm not talking Xfinity in IndyCar. I'm talking Cup. <laughs> I'm talking the big, big show in IndyCar. I think that would be amazing. We already know that it's one of IndyCar's biggest shows of the year. Nobody, I mean, nobody that's been to Road America walks away saying, meh, that was lame. The racing was bad. The everything was bad. If you are from the planet Earth and a human being, you love it. It's amazing. So the thought of combining both worlds at a track and a venue that I think brings out the best of everyone, where the crowd showing up, here goes the car alarm again, plus a plane overhead, where the crowd just celebrates everything that seems to be happening. Uh, that just tells me the odds of this being a smash, a true smashing success, I think would be amazing. Uh, it'd be hard to fit headlights and whatnot to Indy cars. Uh, I don't know about putting overhead Musco lighting, the mobile lighting stuff, around a four-mile circuit like that, that might be a little cost prohibitive. But I do wonder if, for one race only, you could fit the cup cars with true, blaring, sports car-style headlights. Something where if we wanted to start, do the IndyCar race, and then a few hours later go into darkness with the cup cars using headlights and maybe, again, it's a little bit of help with overhead lighting in certain places. I think that might be the perfect solution. But what do you guys think? Drop me a note and tell me. Simon Rafi. Hey, Simon says, I've read there were serious talks about IndyCar racing on the Charlotte Roval. My first thought was, why not also try the Daytona Road Course? Have IndyCars ever raced on the layout? Don't know about raced, Simon. I do seem to recall a test mid-2000s, maybe? Something along those lines uh, of the good old I to the R to the L there. And seem to recall that it went okay, but I will be very honest in saying I have no passion for Daytona's Roval. Its road course is, I don't know. It's road course, actually, I find somewhat interesting. Some cool things can take place there. The rest, meh. Would be interesting, though, to see what IndyCar could do, uh, at least using the Rolex 24 Daytona as a guide. I just can't recall a race in a while that has been really, really compelling and exciting. So not sure if that would put on a show worth watching. Also not sure if... Our friends at Daytona Beach 
are wanting to welcome a series that I guess seems to be getting a little bit stronger year by year as they get a little bit weaker year by year. It's one thing to talk about a potential twosome, a little tie up somewhere where both series race together. This, I don't know. Uh, This just makes me wonder if Daytona beach would actually welcome such a thing. Now we got a couple here. (laughs) There are a few mentions of this and I'll just, I don't know how many I pasted in this call. This call, this call, this call comes from Paul Trahan. Says Marshall, if spam dash fart becomes a thing, what would its logo look like? Hashtag me personally, I would go with a cartoon of a lump of spam being jettisoned from the can. The sound it makes would definitely be fart worthy. And for those who have been fortunate to miss recent conversations, spam is the jumbled acronym for arrow mclaren sp if we jumble that around we get spam and then also the potential tie-in with the fernando alonzo race team so yeah i really do need to get some spam dash fart t-shirts going here soon um i like the logo idea paul i might have to as another call back to our man roger warwick might have to get roger on the job here to come up with something michael brennan says, MP, what can you tell us about the silly season that you haven't been able to share until now? Well, I really shouldn't be breaking news on my podcast because my clients expect that from me. I can mention this because it's not going into any specifics, but it is real. Um, there is a European team. I won't mention what form of racing, what anything i'll just mention that they are a european racing team that have considerable funding that spend a considerable amount of money budgets that make indycar's annual price of six to eight million per season per car look puny I am fully aware of one European team that is looking to compete in IndyCar, looking to tie up with a team. And I know that because I was asked to make an introduction and sat down with a team owner at Laguna Seca and imparted that information. And I believe that team owner has been, well, I know that they were extremely interested, but I I know that team owner was putting together an action plan to see if they could make something happen quickly. I don't know if this European team has true intentions of doing something as early as 2020, but would say that 21, which might be a little bit more realistic, but who knows, um, this team's real. It's not some fly-by-night thing. It's not some, hey, we're thinking of putting together a team. It's real. And so if they decide to go forward with an IndyCar program in which they do want to partner with an existing team, it would be pretty darn amazing. And uh, I, yeah. So that is something I've been sitting on along with a few other, well, many other things been sitting on for a while, Michael. But yeah, 
that's probably the one thing I can share that I don't know if I've put put that out anywhere. I realize I haven't told you who it is, what it is, etc. But it's real. Um, just depends on whether that team comes to terms with the team that I've introduced them to. If they come back and say, hey, uh, I know you thought that was the right fit, but we don't. Is there someone else? Or after discussions, they come away saying, yeah, maybe we don't want to do this. But in terms of their size and ability and intent, at least at the outset of discussions, has me excited. Uh, let's go to Brett Ross. Here's a fun one. M to the P. Can you share some memories about you driving Formula Fords? Any podiums or crashes? Well, uh, both. More of the latter than the former, though. My first paying job in racing was in 1988. I spent 87 and I believe half or so of 1986 as a volunteer, uh, I guess, yeah, volunteer crew member in pro racing. So oddly enough, I started out in pro racing instead of amateur racing with a friend of my father's who was a local racer, competed in the SCCA Super V series, which was the, I guess, rival to the Formula Atlantic series. So did that for a year and a half, two years, then thinking that I had enough knowledge, which I did at this basic level, I went to work for a team here in the Bay Area in the South Bay called TR Race Service and prepared, I think it was about 12 Formula Fords, something along those lines. It was a lot. It was a 2,000 square foot shop packed with smaller open wheel kind of training level Formula Fords 1, Formula Ford 2000, an Atlantic car or two, but by and large, lots and lots of Formula Fords. And so working on those, which I loved, it really gave me the foundation. It was a a one-man shop. It was me at 18 years old having to do all the stuff, figure a lot of stuff out, which was was truly great. Super do-it-yourself mindset. One of the guys that I worked with uh, preparing his car, there was a guy named Al Nishikawa, and he drove a 1980 Taiga Formula Ford. And after I think a year or two, decided he wanted to sell it and move up to a Swift DB1. I had moved on to Pfeiffer Ridge Racing, but I think seeing him at the track, he was running with a different team then. I think Tom Rust Racing maybe had mentioned that the old Taiga that I took care of for him at TR Race Service. He had parted that thing out, uh, took the, I shouldn't say parted it out, disassembled it, yanked the motor, used it in his Swift, and it had all the parts and basically the car just stripped down to nothing so he could fit it in a really small storage facility and said, well, it's kind of a, a basket case. Truly, I've got parts and pieces and baskets just to fit it all into this small space. Um, willing to sell it if you want it and sold it to uh, my father and I for three grand, which is nothing. And so we put it back together. Um, I think I did the majority of that, but I put the chassis back together, having done it countless times at TR. And my stepbrother, Mark, had a 1970 something or other Capri, uh, really nice Ford Capri. It was his pride, his daily driver, and it had 
the same 1.6 liter Ford four-cylinder Kent engine. That's the basis for Formula Fords. Don't remember exactly what he was doing, and I'm going to write about this just because it was silly fun. Don't remember where Mark went. Don't remember what it was, but he was gone for a couple days, whatever it was, and his pride and joy Capri was parked out in front of our house. And my father, knowing that it had a Kent engine in it, and we had a Formula Ford that needed a Kent engine, um, let's just say that Mark came back from, I don't know, camping or whatever, and found that his daily driver no longer had an engine. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, he wasn't too happy to learn that. Um, so my dad, master mechanic, race car builder, amateur stuff mainly. But, uh, yeah, so my old man yanked the engine out of Mark's Capri. And one of the things to know about Formula Ford engines, while they are were... By and large stock, not much in the way of performance, anything done to them. They are not indeed truly 100% stock. So uh, for reasons I might not fully grasp, um, he yanked the motor out. Uh, I think replaced the bearings in it, or maybe had me replace the bearings in it. And we threw it into the Taiga. And off we went. Um, where things get fun is, well, you know, the carburetor needs a lot of work and tuning. And there's a lot of things. The intake manifold, stock intake manifold, need a little bit of massaging here or there. None of those things happened. And so my first time driving it, it fumbled and farted. It didn't want to rev above 5,000 RPMs, and I think 6,500 or so was about the rev limit. And for a little four-cylinder, those revs really do matter. You need to get up all the way to the red line to make all the speed and power. And so I had to bring the thing back to Tom Russ Racing, where my friend Matt Swan was working, Matt Swan of Chip Ganassi Racing. Um, and Tom Rust uh, did some things to it, so it actually performed like a Ford engine, Formula Ford engine, but using that little Taiga and whatnot, got to do driver school, got to do a handful of races, got my novice license signed off and all those things and really had a blast. Learned that I had talent as a driver. Talent, though, on an amateur level and nothing more. So my dreams of being the next Ayrton Senna or whomever, yeah, that was not going to happen. Uh, It was just simply not going to happen at all. But I did learn a heck of a lot. Um, While I might not have understood a lot of things back then, you know, chassis set up and whatnot. I mean, keep in mind, I'm, I think, 20 at the time and still learning very much. uh, Did give me some great insights about handling car doing things I wanted it to, didn't want it to do trying to think of some things to do driving wise to change what it did while i might not have been the master of the corners in the brief amount of formula four driving and racing that i did one thing probably more the car than me but one thing that i was able to do was outbreak a lot of people so i think in my first race i started 28th 
I don't remember the reason why, but I didn't qualify. Um, might've had some sort of car problem. I don't know what, but started more or less dead last. And this was at Sears point and believe I finished 16th. So past 12 cars, I believe, um, something in that range. And the vast majority of those passes were under braking into turn seven and turn 11, maybe turn four. Um, yeah. Diving down inside of people under some form of whether it was braking or just having to lift and slow on entry to a corner, maybe compared to true hard braking, whatever it was, a uh, car seemed to be able to do that well. So I took advantage of that. So also spun a lot, mostly in driver school at Sears Point. Uh, it was raining about half the time and do recall that. Yeah, uh, I don't think there were many corners on the 11 turn circuit where I didn't meet the corner workers uh, because I was backwards or sideways, whatever it was. Um, then I had a crash in, I think qualifying for my second race and broke the car up pretty good up front, had to sit out for a while because again, young working full time in racing, wasn't making much money at all. And so it took a good while to get the car repaired I also hurt myself too, hurt my wrist. Uh, anyways, team wasn't too fond of me d- trying to drive race cars while also work for them, but whatever. So the fun thing was the f- last race I ended up doing, the thing to sign off on my driver's license was a catch-all race because the timing with working for Five Ridge Racing meant that you know, my weekends were there, so unless there was a non-conflicting weekend where they did not have any clients with cars on track, there's no chance for me to drive my little shitbox. And so needing to sign off my license, had to get in one more race successfully. The only thing I could find, there were no Formula Ford races, I believe, left on the calendar. It's a bit of a catch-all. I don't remember what they called it exactly, but it was kind of the Formula Alphabet group, Formula... Atlantics, Formula Continentals, Formula This, which we would call uh, Formula Ford 2000s today, USF 2000. They had one class, I think it was A Formula something. And it was basically the, here's a class for all things that don't really fit in the other structured classes, Formula classes. And it had some monstrous vehicles that would run in it sometimes. Um, (laughs) So that's what I went into. And I was one of two cars, and it was done strictly to get that race and to get my license. And a woman by the name of Nancy James, local racer, former Atlantic racer, she was such a badass. She was on pole by a million miles. Me and my little Formula Ford, again, and my somewhat limited talent was a a light year off. Get to the end of the race. Take the checkered flag. I'm happy. I'm like, cool. Got the race in. Everything's done. I get my license signed off. Cool. I can now go race whenever I want. And pulling in Sears point turn 11, the way they used to do things This is before the big remodeling. This is the old school pit lane and just old school. Everything you'd come in turn 11, curl around to the right. And they would just direct you to pull up into the paddock, basically curl around and then just keep going straight. And 
that's the normal routine. You'd go into impound, you'd sit there for whatever period of time, or if anyone had a protest, anyone had a whatever, uh, maybe they would decide to do an impound on the leader and check the legality of their car. But you'd come in, you'd sit and park for 20 minutes, half hour. They'd let you go because next race is running. They need to use that space for those cars. So pulling in, and there's the person, the flagger there standing kind of in the middle directing traffic. So the winners, they would direct to keep curling around and go down pit lane. The end of pit lane, there'd be a flagger who handed you a checkered flag. Everybody else, again, up into impound. I'm curling around, starting to go straight to the left just a little bit towards impound, and the flagger stopped me. And I'm like, what? And I was a little bit incensed. I don't know why, but like, what? What are you, why are you wasting my time here? What's, what's going on? And he said, wrong way. Go to the right. What do you mean? I need to go to impound. No, you need to go to the right. And I was arguing with the guy because although it's minor, you got to go to impound. You got to follow the rules. You got to do all these things to get the things signed off. That was all I could think about was getting signed off. He's like, you won, idiot something to that effect, go to the end of pit lane and get your checkered flag. And I'm like, what? And that's when I realized that Nancy James broke. <laughs> you know, she lapped me 400 times in a 20 or 25 minute race. And I probably everyone else too. Uh, so I never even, again, I never saw her other than her whistling by, I never thought about her because again, just come on. So it just shocked me. It truly shocked me that i had quote and i'm using air quotes here won the race i was one of two cars come on man and the one nancy her car broke the only reason i won the race is because i didn't crash or break i didn't actually pass anyone i didn't do anything to earn it so i just felt really sheepish i like yeah i don't remember exactly how that lap went because they send you down to the end of pit lane and you get the checkered flag and most people hold it up and wave it, you know, and do the victory lap for all the different little classes or whatever. I seem to recall just taking it and kind of putting it in the cockpit and just driving around and coming back in because it was embarrassing. Like, you know, this wasn't, I should not have been handed the checkered flag. And so after the race, Soon, shortly after getting out of the car, went and found Nancy. I think you know after impound was over, drove the car back to our little paddock spot, hopped out, and I think Nancy wasn't paddock too far away. Just walked over to her. I knew her a little bit, and just handed her the checkered flag. I'm like, yeah, uh, they gave this to me, but it's yours. Come on now. And she was the coolest. She was like, no, no, you won the race, regardless of how. Uh, I didn't make it to the finish line. And so, therefore, you won the class. That is yours. Um, you know, I don't want it. I don't deserve it. I said, well, something along the lines of, well, that makes two of us. Um, so, kept the flag, still have it. It's, I think it's genuinely been curled up, furled up, whatever the correct term is. I'm not sure where it is. It, it might be in storage somewhere, but I've never put it on a wall. I've never done anything with it because, yeah, uh, kind of ridiculous. So, that was my somewhat short-lived Formula 4 driving career. Uh, last open-wheel car I got to drive was an Indy Lights car in 90, 1996, the end of the 96 season, when our driver Mark Hotchkiss, a mighty fine human being, said, hey, as soon as we're done here at the season finale at Laguna Seca, 
Uh, I've rented Button Willow tomorrow, Monday. Uh, let's go down, and I want all you guys to drive the car. And just as a thank you for your year of work and service. And so his teammate, Dave De Silva, not a bad guy, uh, had no such interest in rewarding his crew for whatever reason, even though he had won a race or two with them. Um, and so Mark, coming back to that being an excellent human being thing, said, no, come on, you guys, you know, you're just as much a part of the team as the guys who worked on my car. So he ran everybody through his Lola Buick Indy Lights car as well, which is pretty darn cool. So big thanks to him. That was a lot of fun. I got to post the video of it. My <laughs> my portly behind didn't fit in the car. Couldn't put on the seat belts. I was sitting above the car. Like my shoulders were up out of the cockpit. Um, yeah, it's the funniest thing ever. So I did, I think out of the, I don't know if I, I think I completed three laps. I think I did one or two successfully on Buttonwillow's little short-ish course. And then Bun coming out of the final corner. Again, I don't know if it was the end of the second lap or the third, but it was just so crazy having to use the steering wheel to turn while hold myself up uh, under braking and rotating. Again, I've got no seat belts, no anything. All my body weight falling forward or falling back could barely reach the pedals, which might sound weird because my legs aren't short, but because I was sitting on top of the little, I guess, the, the little side structures. Normally, a, a normal-sized person, their hips would fall in between this little area and sit on the, the bottom of the tub. I was having to sit up on top, which pulled me back quite a bit. So I don't know if I could get full throttle. Not sure I got a ton of... I got enough brake to slow down, but really struggled depressing the clutch all the way. So I was having to try and steer push back to hold my torso up, uh, push my right foot and bend my ankle as much as I could use my tippy toes to get the throttle down most of the way. And then was also having to shift without the clutch with my right hand at that point, then now pushing my upper torso up with my left. Um, it, it, it was, yeah, it was interesting. So, I think the general takeaway was they couldn't believe I could drive the car like that. I don't know how I did it. But then when I spun, knowing that I had nothing holding me into the car, it scared everybody. And I think they even said if he even spins, he's, we're bringing him in right away. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Since then, I don't know, driven a few other things, um, had some fun there. But in the back of my head, certainly hope that at some point in time here in the near future, can get back to driving something because I miss it. And also think with many years of race experience, engineering experience, all those things added on that I didn't have for the most part back in my formula four days, I might not be too bad, not great, not capable of winning, probably not even capable of sniffing a podium, but think that I might not be as bad as I once was. So thanks for the fun question. A little trip down memory lane here. Let's go to Andrew Marshall. It says, hey, I know the topic of an IndyCar video game is an old topic. It says, I think IndyCar should talk to Turn 10, who is a developer for Forza Motorsports. The current IndyCar is in the game. The manufactured body kits are also uh, in a few of the older games as well. 
Easy way to get IndyCar involved in esports because Turn 10 and Forza already have their leagues. Can you please pass along my idea? I will certainly do so. Andrew, let's go to Nathan Cook, who says, MP, in many episodes you've mentioned Ganassi is talking about a technical alliance with the team. With Meyershank Racing no longer partnered with Spam, what are the chances they team up with Ganassi? Also, wouldn't that give Ganassi a chance to keep their IMSA team and move them to MSR on the IndyCar side? Don't mind mentioning this because I know it hasn't gone anywhere, uh, meaning it's not in development, so uh, there shouldn't be any issue saying it. But I uh, did reach out to Michael Shank to let him know at the request of the team that um, they would love speaking with him, and I believe his deal was already done at the point that I mentioned that to him. Um, keep in mind, Mike is not looking to let his people go by any means. So an alignment with a Ganassi, and we also have another question here in just a little bit about Andretti. Uh, he's not looking to ditch who he has and use all of another team's personnel. The main thing they're looking for is the technical side. So basically a race engineer and the ability to compare data and rely on a bigger team and their data to be a sharper one car unit in partnership. Uh, So yeah, I would say that's the main thing here, Nathan. Um, No real angle I can think of on the sports car side though. Uh, Let's see. Bobby Rooney, this is a great one. MP, put on your driver's hat for a minute. What sort of driver or career arc profile would make you willing to drive for Foyt next year? He says, say Kanan doesn't return. There are two seats open, but few people actually want them, and many IndyCar careers have died there in recent years. What sort of career profile would it take for going to Foyt to be a good decision for a driver? Funnily enough, Bobby... Robin Miller and I had this exact discussion over the weekend, I believe. And I, from the things that I've heard and have a strong feeling for, doesn't mean they're accurate, but I have a pretty strong inkling things might be headed in such a direction. I've heard that there's a, a variation of a handshake or a, yeah, we'd, we'd like to work together again between Tony Kanon and the team. Can't say if that's going to go forward. But if we're looking at, a change, a true change in both seats, as you mentioned here. I believe they might want to get a little bit younger. I'm trying to think of someone who would be perfect. And in the conversation that Robin and I had, we spent some time looking through the entry list, recent entry lists, looked at those who might be available And it was very hard to find folks, as you alluded to, and I know as I've mentioned before. It's a place where a lot of careers have gone to die of late. And so what kind of scenario could you look at where a driver might want to go there knowing, since they have parted ways with their technical director and lead engineer, Eric Cowden, that... Again, I don't know of many high-quality race engineers on the market, first of all. And secondly, who would then want to go to Foyt knowing it's been bluntly a shit show? So, 
just trying to think of the right fit as you ask here. Two names came to mind that I mentioned to Robin. One was Jerry Hildebrand. And that's someone who is still young. I know he's done this for a long time. I know that, you know, he's 31. But I would say since engineering has been an area where they have been off, I know that their damper program in particular is something that they spent a lot of money on this past season, but just went obviously in a very wrong direction. But knowing that they're going to have to start from scratch with both damping and just overall race engineer structure to begin with, someone like a Jer Hildebrand, who is known for his technical capabilities, who is not passive, who doesn't just all right, the car's understeering. Now you fix it. Someone who can actually get involved. Not saying he's a race engineer, but saying he is smart enough and his sensitivity is strong enough to be able to give excellent feedback, maybe share some ideas from other teams he's been with and help a team that I expect to be, unless there's some unexpected shift, still somewhat weak on the engineering side. Someone like JR stands out to me as a youngish veteran who could do more than just drive the car, but play possibly a bigger role if they allow, if they're willing. Would also say JR's old school sensibilities might be a nice fit for the team, in particular AJ. Other driver that stood out for me, Bobby, and this is, I'm not saying that this would be the best for him because I think he has talent and I'd love to see him develop at a bigger team. But I think someone like RC Enerson might be able to gain some valuable experience at the team. Something that just gives him more seasoning, allows him to learn some more tracks. I know he's been to many tracks on the road to Indy, but just more miles of the places he has been, or just for the first time in an Indy car. I think RC Enerson That kid's definitely quick. Kid is not afraid. I like the idea of RC there because I believe most IndyCar team owners would have no expectations for him and be pleasantly surprised by any success that he was able to deliver. Folks know without a doubt that is not a place to go right now where you are going to have positive things happen so if the kid goes there and runs towards the back of the grid i don't think that hurts him simply because it would be a surprise if it didn't happen and knowing how competitive he was uh, in his couple of races with dale coin racing folks have seen him go very very quickly so i think that all-american lineup with jr being in a position where there's nothing that's going to hurt him in doing this. Uh, and he can actually contribute more to the team than an average driver. That to me stands out as something definitely worth considering. We're going to go back to our favorite acronyms here. Jim Kaiser. Hey, Jim. Also know I need to get back to you here on winning last week. Our prize pack last week. He says, if Andretti, Steinbrenner, Harding were to bring on the Herta Agajanian team, Could you join in, and would we have a new acronym, Ash Heap, to go along with Spam Fart? 
Oh, the acronyms are just taken off here. <laughs> Spam fart ash heap. Um, uh, uh, I'm just going to go to Andrew Marshall again, who's back. Another question with Springs and Dampers being open for development. Why has no suspension company been a title sponsor for a team? I would think a big company like Saks, who does all the suspension for the German auto industry, would be a great sponsor because it would allow them to develop trick dampers. Or how about aftermarket suspension companies like H&R, Bilstein, KW Suspension? I think it'd be a great B2B partnership. Well, interesting one here, Andrew. Uh, If we look at a Saks, for example, and realize that they do have giant contracts, well, they already have giant contracts. Going out and racing and spending six to eight million a year in IndyCar to show that they make good stuff, well, they already have that. They've already proven that. They already have those contracts. So I don't know if that's a need. Of course, they could demonstrate this maybe to other automotive manufacturers who might want to hire them for something. I don't know if the aftermarket business, though, is as big as it once was to warrant such a thing. Uh, You talk about H&R and Bilstein and whatnot. I guess the main takeaway here is racing dampers like this, small, lightweight things that have inerters and do all kinds of really trick, trick things. Um, It's a pretty big investment, and it's a very small niche market. I, while I think there's some options that could be explored here. I don't know if an K&W or a Saks or whomever would really want to take on an Olean's, a Penske, a Coney, a Dynamic, ones with years, decades of institutional IndyCar knowledge. It'd be pretty hard to overcome that. Not saying it's impossible, but... If I had such a company, I wouldn't even consider it unless I had a ridiculous budget to throw at it. Uh, So I love the idea. Just don't know if it fits IndyCar in 2019. Uh, Let's see. Al Wolstein says, why hasn't there been any action to reviving the Canadian triple header from the cart days? That was big crowds, pretty good racing, and another prize for the driver who could sweep all three. Also, why does IndyCar not race at Road Atlanta or CTMP? For the last question, uh, because the cars would fly into outer space. Uh, Those are two tracks that would be amazing to watch the cars. But from a safety standpoint, it'd take a lot of money to make anyone at IndyCar say, yep, we will risk running there. Um, As for why hasn't there been any action reviving the Canadian triple headers, Well, there's the practical answer, Al, and that is when those took place, nobody at the series today was there or has any connection, any memories, any anything. So this isn't something where folks are saying, hey, we used to do this. We should do it again. There's folks running everything who, yeah, uh, weren't doing anything related to making those happen. So that's the first thing. Second... What would the three tracks be? We know Toronto's one. We know that Champ Car had a brief dalliance at Mont Tremblant. We know that 
Champ Car also went to Circuit Gilles Villeneuve in Montreal. We know that Vancouver was a staple for a long time. That's gone away. I believe that's now apartments or something like that. But where would those three be? I mean, uh, not just name three tracks, but name three tracks that are FIA class, whatever, certified that are up to full spec. I think the answer to the question lies there, Al. There are some amazing tracks in Canada. That is not in question. Are they ready to host an IndyCar race? I'm not sure if that could be proven to be accurate. So that's probably the reason. Daniel Ingleton. Hey, Daniel. Not sure if I've uh, had a question from you before. Thanks for sending this in. He says, massive IndyCar fan from the UK. Is there any chance of getting access to the NBC Gold service overseas now that full races and practices aren't shown on YouTube only with short highlights? Also, what chance do you give to there being a European round in the future? On the last question, Daniel, I'd say zero until a promoter or track steps up with the money to make it happen. Uh, So, yes, if someone is willing to fly the fleet of cars and safety vehicles, and if there's someone willing to put everything on a boat or a plane, and pay to make it all happen, then IndyCar, I'm sure, would consider going almost anywhere. Uh, So, yeah, it's that thing that has to happen first. As for gold, that's a great question. I need to follow up here because that was obviously the largest complaint this season. If you're in America from a geo-blocking standpoint, boy, it's awesome. And as someone who paid for gold, loved it. Um, Wonder if and what the plans might be for year two, if there are any changes planned whatsoever so that's certainly something i need to dive into and thanks again for sending this in see eric harkrader says who will win rookie of the year in indycar next year uh and for indy and the season well knowing that (laughs) we only have two drivers right now that we know of expected to come into indycar that being oliver askew that being his main rival, Renus VK, really hard to answer. Uh, I know Eric says, hashtag me personally, I'd like to see it be Askew, but I'm not sure he'll have a full season. So I'll take Askew at Indian VK for the season. I would just say we need to wait a little bit, Eric, and get a better feel as to who all's coming in. Because if we do have some interesting rookies from outside the U.S. or just unexpected, be hard to predict who and what. But between those two... Again, it also depends very heavily on which teams they sign with. So let's wait until we have a better idea of who who all is going to be part of our rookie class. I will say this, though, at a very early stage. I expect Renus to be the revelation of the year. I think that kid flown under the radar a bit in terms of awareness, popularity, whatever. Oliver, obviously, as the champ, received the vast majority of interest from folks, and I think that kid has a massive, massive future ahead of him. But I do think that Renus, driving for a smaller Indy Lights team, one that, no disrespect to my friend Ricardo Juncos, but a Juncos Indy Lights car at most rounds 
was not directly equitable in performance to an Andretti Autosport vehicle. Renus <laughs> Renus worked some pretty amazing miracles to have as good a season that he did to run so close to Oliver for the vast majority of that season. So I think Renus is going to be the one. How's this? I think Askew provided both land with teams we think that are going to be solid. I think Askew is going to have folks saying, yep, knew that kid was good, and look, he's proving it. I think Renus is going to be the one, a little bit like Colton Herta, right? Coming out of last year's Indy Lights season, the all about Pato, as it should have been. Kid won the championship, just gobsmacked everybody at Sonoma with his qualifying performance, race performance, looked like he was light years ahead of his teammate. Obviously, Pato, financial issues, and the Harding team couldn't honor his contract, blah, 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 all the stuff we know. Thing we also didn't know until Colton told us and showed us was, holy crap, yeah, uh, don't don't read too much into how the championship played out last year in lights. Don't read too much into how his Sonoma IndyCar debut wasn't that stellar. This kid, ooh, diamond in the rough, and by the end of the year, forget the rough, looking pretty darn polished. So, would say Renus... Not claiming he's going to win two races, earn three poles, and do all those things. But I think folks will be having similar comments about Renus at the end of the year. Wow. Didn't know he was that good. Let's go to Thomas Gross. Says, on his recent podcast, Connor Daly strongly hinted that Meyershank Racing will be working with Andretti. Is six full-time cars under one organization too many? Well, uh, back to our conversation just a moment ago, Thomas. This would be the five Andretti cars under one tent and one fully independent in terms of owning it, running it, where it's based. They would be linked up through pre-event planning. They would be linked up during the event with Jack Harvey sitting in on all the debriefs with their engineer being a part of all discussions. But no, I would say that another just quick note, the plan for 2019, coming back to Pato, was to be six cars. Four full-time at Andretti, two full-time at Harding Steinbrenner. So while they've shifted one full-time under their banner going into 2020 with Colton, numerically, I don't see much here, Thomas. It makes me think it's outside of any of the plans that they've had or the abilities they have. Let's go to Doug White. He says, been an IndyCar fan for... Well, let's just say many years. He says, I should probably know this, but alas, I don't. Can you explain what crossweight is, how you adjust it, and what the attended effect is on the car? So crossweight, Doug, and for those who are curious, crossweight is something we talk about and use on ovals. There are some super rare instances throughout the years at tracks that road courses that are predominantly turning in the same direction the whole time. I don't know, 10 out of the 11 corners are right or left, where there might be some setup differences to make the car turn in that predominantly whatever direction, left or right, better, knowing that there might be one corner where the car suffers a little bit. But really, let's just stick with ovals because that's the primary place where cross weight is applied 
you think about what is happening at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, for example, it's turning left four times a lap. The left side tires, while important, are not carrying the majority of the load. We're talking the load just in performance. The right front tire is the thing that when turning into the corner, not only is it physically getting there first, it's taking big load. Then as the car begins to track around the corner, the right rear digs in, takes the majority of the load. But you basically have the right side of the car, the right side tires, suspension, everything being tasked very heavily with providing grip. So if we're going to step away from an oval and crossweight for just a moment and talk about a road course, you hear drivers mentioning oversteer, understeer. Neutral is also a thing, but it's pretty rare. Front of the car isn't turning. Back of the car isn't sticking or front of the car is sticking, back of the car is sliding, uh, back of the car is sticking, therefore causing the front, uh, back of the car is gripping too much, therefore the front isn't turning. There are various ways oversteer and understeer can happen. But if we're just talking about, hey, I'm going into turn one at Road America, and I'm turning the wheel, and it's just pushing. It's, it's understeering. We're talking front of the car back of the car you can tune to adjust the front to turn better you can tune the back to slide less or not at all just mentioning front and back and so from a tuning standpoint on a road course you're talking going to change something up front going to change something in back going to try and rectify the thing you don't like oversteer or understeer get to an oval still dealing with oversteer and understeer and all those things but you often move away primarily move away from a quote front of the car back of the car i'm going to change something up front only what you often do is you're looking at the diagonal forces now you're thinking of the left rear tire and the right front tire diagonally. You're thinking of the right rear connected to the left front diagonally. Why? This is where the crossway comes in. So as you are turning left, 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 how much weight you transfer across the car diagonally, say left rear to the right front, or right rear to the left front can affect how the car turns, how the car is settled. And so it's a little bit foreign. Again, instead of it just simply being front of the car, back of the car, we're going to tune one half, whichever is making me not happy. We're going to make adjustments either up front or out back to try and rectify oversteer, understeer. What you'll often have is some sort of tuning that actually works diagonally. Why? Well, again, how much weight you have placed on the right rear, since we know the right side of the car is doing most of the work, that's an isolated corner 
you would want to be able to tune. You wouldn't necessarily want to tune the entire back of the car because the left rear, eh, it's there, it's working, not as much. Same with the right front, again, diagonally from the left rear to the right front tire. How much weight is being sent across the car diagonally, either through springs, stiffer, softer, weight jacker, that's frankly the exact purpose for a weight jacker in the cockpit using either a hydraulic method older school would have been cranking a knob something that allows you to either add or reduce weight diagonally across the car to affect oversteer or understeer in an indy car unless the setup's way the heck off on a big oval or on any oval for the most part, you're talking about trying to reduce understeer. And so that is crossweight in effect. If you, some drivers really love a lot of weight on the right front tire, that is their preferred handling. And they really like it to be loaded, super fast reacting. Others prefer the right rear to be the one with the majority of weight placed on it. Well, that is, again, something through either spring rates, just talking generalisms here. You can do ride height adjustments. You can do a variety of things, but just talking general here, that's where running staggered springs, something where instead of having equal spring rates at the rear and equal at the front, which is common or pretty much standard for road and street courses, indeed, that's very rare on an oval. Something where, with the cross weight we're talking about here, we'd look to have spring rates that are actually completely different at each corner. And depending upon the handling characteristic the driver is looking for, adjusting those spring rates to adjust the cross weight, creating a bit of a lever effect diagonally to the right front or to the right rear, that's by and large, what we're talking about when we talk about crossweight. Let's go to Chad Pritchard. Says, is there any relevance between what Firestone does for IndyCar and their road tires? Do they take what they learn from racing and apply it for the product they sell? Or are they in IndyCar purely for the marketing reasons? To my knowledge, Chad, I believe that there's both here. Both, though, with a little bit of modified explanation. So there's obviously a marketing angle to this long, long back to day one type presence for Firestone in IndyCar, the Indy 500. So that's a huge tradition. They market the heck out of that. I'm glad that they do. I think most are. I can't say that what they are learning in IndyCar goes straight to the tires, the Firestone tires you might buy for your road car. But they do, as many manufacturers do these days in motor racing, and this isn't just tire manufacturers, auto manufacturers specifically, it's the engineers, it's the training, it's the cross-pollination that takes place. It's something where someone who works in the road car, engineer, tire engineering division, manufacturing division, might spend some time with Firestone on the production side, with their race products, might come out to the race track. You see that in with Honda, with Chevy, go over to IMSA, and it's 
every manufacturer seemingly they make use of their racing endeavors to make the folks back in the production plant whether it's cars tires whatever smarter folks from a performance standpoint from a process standpoint one of the big attractions for racing this is an obvious statement but one of the big attractions to doing this in racing which is so different from what folks come across doing this normally back at whatever factory is the timeline you have an issue you have something that needs solving yeah you're not setting up four weeks of planning to plan meetings it's holy crap this thing was diabolical this morning qualifying's in three hours we need to come up with something and whether it was the engine that was diabolical whether the tires were off i realize that firestone isn't manufacturing new tires between sessions to appease their teams but this is something where the just rapid pace of delivery expectation everything that's where you get folks looking wide-eyed it's always fun when you say oh hey meet this new person here it could be someone hitachi comes to mind one of the team penske sponsors hey this person works on the design and production side over here they're coming out for the weekend just see what it's like and they just are completely wide-eyed realizing that oh you spent three years developing a new cordless drill that's awesome uh our brakes were overheating we need to come up with some form of modification to our ducting or we need to analyze the reasons why and get this rectified in almost no time is there something we can do through simulation to model this and run some sim tests and get to the bottom of it and find out and rectify it for the next session and you see folks who have weeks months years in terms of timelines in their head for what they do going oh (laughs) yeah that won't work let me see how you guys do things here and then they take those things back and often improves the brand with whatever it is that they're working on because they realize aha different way of doing things different expectations possibly Um, and then there's just also the real hardcore technical side of the folks getting in getting their hands dirty learning about something that they wouldn't normally do in an office setting or on a shop floor, production floor, whatever it is, manufacturing floor. So I'd say just in a very general sense, Chad, when you look at a Firestone, um, I don't know of any crazy high-performance tires that they make that might have some form of carryover. Obviously, there's, I think, parent brand, sister brand, Bridgestone, a little more of a name for that. If we move over to Michelin and IMSA, they're definitely known for taking what they learned at the racetrack and applying that to their street tires. It's a real well-established and straightforward pipeline there. But uh, maybe I'll learn a little bit more from my pal Lisa Boggs, who runs the racing program for Firestone, or our pal Kara Adams, Firestone's chief race tire engineer, who need to have back on as our guest here very soon. Hopefully she can tell us more coming back to an emerging theme here on this q a episode of the week in indycar this comes from at doctor who 1975 also known as our man lance snyder mp if spam dash fart 
does come into being, would their press releases be considered tooting their own horn? Oh, my God. Uh, Okay. We're going to go to Mark J. Cardella. Thanks again, Mark, for sending in stuff seemingly every week now. Says with the McLaren F1 team making the switch to Mercedes engines in 2021, what is the possibility we'll see a Mercedes return to IndyCar in 22 with McLaren as their factory team? He says, hashtag me personally can imagine selling a few more silver arrow passenger cars on Mondays as a result of doing that. Um, Zero. One of the interesting things I've noted of late is when something happens somewhere unaffiliated with IndyCar, but there's someone or something that has any kind of IndyCar link, definite questions emerge immediately of whether there's something coming for IndyCar. Uh, This week as well with Simona Di Silvestro confirmed as Porsche's first ever female factory driver aligned with their Formula E program. Had a couple folks ask, does this mean that Porsche might be reconsidering their IndyCar engine thing? And again, I <laughs> I would love it if the answer was yes, just as I would love to say Mercedes coming back to IndyCar would be amazing. Um, I would just say that if Mercedes wanted to go IndyCar racing, they could do that at any point in time. Um, if Porsche wanted to do it, they certainly could. Signing Simona Di Silvestro sure would be a weird way of indicating it, though. Uh, in this case, Mark, I mean, I'd I'd love for this to be true. I would think, though, that McLaren, with their growing road car division, totally separate from the racing team, as Zach Brown has mentioned multiple times on the show before, different management, different everything, different budgets, but. If McLaren were to look for a engine partner for IndyCar with the new formula coming here in a couple of years, I'd just say that doing a McLaren motor to further promote what they're selling here in the U.S. would make a lot more sense to me in this instance. Could another team try and align or try and get Mercedes in? Sure, but we'll absolutely express my ongoing frustration that other than selling customer cars, primarily their GT3 and GT4 AMG coupe models, one that we see racing in IMSA, in World Challenge and whatnot, Mercedes being involved in factory stuff. Yeah, um... I would love it if someone at Mercedes in the USA had a passion for racing, had the balls to try and do it, because it's been way too long. Let's go to Bryson Frank. Bryson, again, I think this might be the first time I'm reading one of your questions. If so, thank you. He says, I'll try this one again, which leads me to think that this isn't the first time. After you clarified that Nico Hulkenberg... Wouldn't fit well in IndyCar. Which F1 drivers, current or recent, do you believe would be a good fit in the paddock? Hashtag me personally. I'd like to see Hartley get his shot. Or more currently, Valtteri Botas or Pierre Gasly. Well, I might have, I don't think I said it, but I uh, wasn't saying that Hulkenberg wouldn't be a good fit in terms of talent. 
I just don't think his personality would be a huge hit with some teams just because he has a reputation for being either a dick or a prima donna. And then also talent-wise, I think he's extremely talented, as I mentioned last week. I just don't think he would scare any of the leading drivers in the series. So I think he'd be quick. I think he'd be a very good driver in IndyCar. I just don't think anyone in IndyCar, other than maybe Dale Coyne, who loves such things, would be clamoring to see if they could get a hold of him. Um, It's interesting you mentioned which current-ish F1 drivers. Would love to see Hartley, of course. Um, Got a question follow-up here about Hartley, too. A little worried, though. I think prior to signing with Chip Ganassi Racing and then Red Bull buying him out of that contract, I think had he stayed in the U.S., I think we would have seen a pretty fearsome and badass driver in 2018. I think after things didn't go super great for Brandon, it's just there's part of me that wonders, not that he is broken a little bit, but just some of that shine was certainly knocked off. And I don't know if it's a confidence thing or what, but the strutting... I'm driving the Porsche 919 hybrid in just, I mean, seriously, one of the world's most fearsome vehicles and have tamed it, and that's why Ganassi is coming after me and has hired me. I haven't seen that guy since, well, we hope to see it in F1. just seemed like Formula 1 might have taken a bit of a toll on his confidence. So while I would love to see him in IndyCar, still... It's only tougher. It's only gotten tougher since he was almost here the first time. I'm not exactly sure he would flourish to the degree that he would have beforehand. I think he'd still be really good. But looking at what our man Frozenquist did, finishing sixth in the championship, really looking like someone who can push Scott Dixon for many years to come, I think the window was perfect for Brendan. I don't know if I would feel the same or say the same uh, if he were to come back. Um, as for who else, yeah, got to admit, uh, I'm I'm not seeing a ton of, of real free agents that jump out to me as as great, great possibilities. I know that before he ended up getting signed by Renault, I was really hoping that Esteban Ocon would be on someone's IndyCar radar. I don't know if he had any interest in it, but I thought that kid showed a lot of potential and never didn't get the ongoing opportunity. I felt he deserved an F1, so it's great to see that he will indeed get a chance to continue and continue getting to play. Uh, just trying to think who else jumps out again from the, the recent F1 angle. Uh, I mean, Albon, definitely. Alexander Albon is someone who I thought prior to things, there being a, an uptick in opportunities for him now with Red Bull. I mean, it's amazing to see that. But as things were looking a little shaky there, he stood out to me as someone who potentially 
would have you know really been a great fit over here in IndyCar. Personality wise, he jumps out to me as someone who I think is pretty light and easy. And that demeanor seems to fit perfectly in IndyCar. Um, yeah, so he's someone that, again, prior to things turning in the right direction, I thought might be headed our way and really thought that we might be in wonderful shape. The one other driver that stood out that I thought might be um, interesting, and I still think he could be. Maybe, though, there's a little bit of the Brendan Hartley thing of getting beaten down and, and maybe confidence not being all that he needs it to be. And that is Pascal Verline. I know that I bounced over to DTM with Mercedes after things went sideways in F1. Um, know that obviously now in Formula E, in Formula E things have gone okay, but not great. Um, just a kid where I look at him and say, well, his, his healing, his pedigree, pretty darn strong. Uh, again, I know that not everything has worked out the way that he had wanted, the way that he had hoped. Just seems to me that the kid might actually be pretty darn good in a comfy environment. That's the last thing that jumps out here. I think most of all on this topic, Bryson, it's the, it's the Alexander Rossi dynamic. Hey, you drove for an okay to really crappy F1 team. You didn't get to show your true potential. You're happy to be an F1, but unhappy that you were stuck at the back of the pack. Your career has petered out. Where could you go to not only revive your career, but in turn, rediscover your passion for racing I mean, that's the Alexander Rossi plan, right? That's what I look at when I think of some of the folks that I've mentioned, knowing that a couple of them now definitely busy and not able to do it. But that's what I think of. Uh, if you can come to IndyCar with a quality team, I think you really find the thing that F1 couldn't offer folks like that unless you are with a Mercedes, a Red Bull, or a Ferrari. Marcus Erickson's a perfect example. I know his season wasn't great. But in terms of driver happiness and enjoying life, uh, he's just all smiles. That's why he's fighting so hard to come back. That's why I continue to hear things only positive uh, about staying in 2020. Know that we mentioned last week Chip Ganassi Racing is definitely among the opportunities there. But he wouldn't be fighting so hard to stay if he was not finding something new that he had lacked in Formula One. So, yeah. Um, maybe that's exactly what Hulkenberg needs. Maybe he'd become less of a dick. Maybe he'd just really find inner peace and happiness and fulfillment. So maybe all the things I said are completely wrong, and this would be the perfect move for him. Shifting to Joey of the Priuses. This is going to latch on to Bryson's question. Look at that, Bryson. We got we got a latch on. Seemed like Harley was one Toro Rosso call-up from being Chip Ganassi's 2018 driver. Is there any interest on either end in bringing him back in the future? I know he's a Toyota driver in the WC now, but does Honda still want him? Not that I know of, Joey. Um, I mean, the Ganassi team really liked him. I know Honda had an interest. 
but I would say most of all the Ganassi team really liked what they saw in him. As I understand it, they were the ones who made the big play and signed him. Uh, so, yeah. Hmm. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not sure. I, I would love to get Brendan back. Love to, who knows, maybe a really good WEC season. More success there. Uh, knowing that, you know, coming in as a bit of a reserve driver and such during the uh, the recently completed super season. It was good for him, but yeah, full-time gig now replacing Alonzo. Maybe a really good season here will help get his mojo back, at least the one that I perceive as being lacking a little bit. All right, I'm going to do a quick little check on the clock here. Just a little bit past an hour and 45 minutes, hour and 50 We are down to our final questions. Last week, I started with the questions from the Reddit IndyCar group. This week, because I'm silly like that, I moved them to the end. First one's from MikeMatt5150. says, hey, Marshall, how would you rate ECR season, and where would you place them in the overall team pecking order? Goes on to say, Spencer Piggott scoring five top tens is a great result. At a team like Carlin, but ECR always seems to be judged as the team Newgarden was winning with, and they're a far cry from that level of competitiveness results-wise. Does that perception hurt someone like Piggott as he enters his third full-time season? Uh, let's see. I will say this. You definitely have a, a great point here that folks might not discern in ways to the degree that they should. Uh, Jeremy Millis, Joseph Newgarden, two super elite talents. One is race engineer, one is driver, obviously. That was a mighty effective combination. I believe the heights set by Joseph. We're still t- going back to 2016, so we're you know a couple years out from that. But still, there's a lasting impression that not too long ago, Ed Carpenter Racing was a team to fear everywhere, not just the ovals, as we know Ed can do. Uh, Ed Carpenter this year. <sighs> ongoing changes yet again with race engineers i believe this is the third straight year of significant or coming into the season it's either the second or third straight year where there were significant changes on the engineering front uh, at least with one car or with one car matt barnes their long time awesome race engineer still there um But I do know, having heard this somewhat consistently throughout the year, uh, this year's new engineering lineup, there are some warring factions between the two camps. That never leads to good things. Also heard the same thing, actually maybe not so much between race engineers uh, at Ray Hall, but just within the engineering group in general. And so while it's super easy to look at a Graham Ray Hall, Spencer Piggott, uh, Ed Jones, whomever, and say, oh, bad year, they suck, whatever. hate to say it, but often it's the 
keep it quiet. Don't let people know we got real housewives of Indianapolis type drama going on behind the scenes on the timing stands in the debriefs with engineers, assistant engineers, performance engineers, technical directors, whatever, staring daggers at one another. F that guy. Uh, we're not doing what he said. We're going to do what I said or screw you. No, I know you think we should do this with dampers, but we're going to do that or whatever. Hate to say it. Um, (laughs) often when we're sitting here going, huh? Um, I'm looking at the, the championship points right now. I mean, Spencer was 14th. Spencer Piggott should not be 14th in points. That's just a fact. Am I saying he should be fifth? I I don't know. He shouldn't be 14th, though. And so not picking on the ECR team at all. I I really like and respect that program. But when you have engineers who are not getting along well, it does not help the team. It does not help the driver. It does not help anything. And what you get is two separate camps. There are many reasons to run a multi-car team. I'd say the core, among the core reasons, not just double the information, but also building a stronger unit. We've got two entities, two teams, trying to rise and uplift. We are sharing information back and forth. This next session out, you we're going to try this damping package. We're going to try this COP, center of pressure. We're going to run through some of these things. You guys are going to do this. You're going to try camber change. You're going to try a rake thing. You're going to do this. You're going to do a, a long run on Firestone Blacks to get a read on that. Yada, yada, right? Here's all the detail stuff that if we were a one-car team, we couldn't get through all those things. As a two-car team, we can multitask. You carry some of the load. We carry some of the load. We come together at the end of the session, work through everything that we did, share the things that were good and bad, mark off all the things that, again, didn't work, come to a consensus, okay, as a direction going into qualifying, going into the race. These are the things we have learned individually, brought together, put on the table, shared, come up with a better competitive unit. That requires engineers. That requires the folks in charge of the information and deciding on directions to work together. And when that doesn't happen, or it starts off that way, but it deteriorates, and by the end of the season, folks just aren't talking to one another. You're on a bit of an island, obviously. So you could look at some of the one-car teams, of which there aren't really any true one-car teams. Uh, I mean, if we're talking full-time, right? Meyer Shank Racing is a one-car team, true, but they're plugged into Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports. Colton Herta, one-car team, Harding-Steinbrenner. Yeah, but they're plugged into the Andretti team. Colton's sitting in the debriefs with all the others. Information's flowing back and forth. There really are no one-car teams that are doing anything successfully. We have had a dynamic recently, not this year, but at Chip Ganassi Racing. Scott Dixon, teammate or two, or had a 
thing going on for a little while where really it was just more or less Dixon. Did have a teammate, might be able to contribute a little bit, but just got to the point where, all right, kind of a one-man band. We need to just dig in and be our do do this ourselves. That's an all-time great, though, in Scott Dixon. That's, you know, a race engineer in Chris Simmons. Seriously, going to first ballot race engineering Hall of Famer right there. Um, you know, strategy and mechanics, right? Very unique situation that would allow Scott Dixon, more or less as a one-car entry, to succeed and win championships and so on. Um, but for the most part, just coming back to the main question here, there's nothing that a Ed Jones, Ed Carpenter, Spencer Piggott can really do if folks aren't working in unison on the same page, coming up with great ideas together on the engineering front. So not saying that Spencer was perfect and should have been higher um, and wasn't because it was everyone else's fault. He made mistakes. He certainly made mistakes. But, yeah, I would say if I'm rating ECR season, it was nowhere near as strong as it should have been, and that's because they're a really good team, and the expectations for them are lofty as a result. Uh, Ed Jones on Ed's side, yeah, that just didn't really work. We know Ed can drive. I mean, I, I wouldn't paint Ed as a championship contender, but I wouldn't paint him. I realize, again, he, he obviously didn't do, there were four races he didn't do, so naturally he would have been towards the bottom of the points. But, you know, forget where he was in the standings. There's just way too many races where Ed Jones was nowhere, was just nowhere. That's not Ed Jones. <laughs> put him back in a Ganassi car. Put him back in a coin car. You know, this season should have been much stronger, in particular in the one, I would say, more for Ed Jones than anything. In Ed Carpenter, you know, uh, sixth at Indy, awesome. Wouldn't make him happy, but not bad at all. Um, would say that his second, obviously, at Gateway was really strong. Ed had two sixths and a second this year, so you know more to what we expect for Ed. Just say overall, if I am ECR going into the off season, I am looking at the engineering side. I don't think Ed Jones ended up being a great fit for the team, and that's not a dig at Ed or the team. Just you know, sometimes things don't quite work out. Uh, I hope Ed finds something somewhere else because I don't expect him to be back. I certainly didn't get the feeling from him speaking with him at Monterey that he expected to be back, and that's probably best for both sides. Let's go to... Where shall we go? Will we start to wind down? That one guy, underscore 96. Hey, Marshall. Hope the move went semi-smoothly. It did. Any word on how close a third engine manufacturer is to being picked up? Nothing at all. Also, any word on if ECR will be running Renus VK full-time or in an Ed Jones-type situation? So the sticking point for VK 
is he wants to be full-time, and I know that he has sponsors that are ready to make him full-time. So far, the ECR team, to my knowledge, is only willing to slot him into the Ed Jones Road and Street Course program. Where this is just curious, and I realize as we do start to get towards the end here, it's turning into the ECR hour. Um, I would not pretend to know how ECR funds itself. We know that Tony George, founder of the Indy Racing League, heir to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, we know that obviously Tony in theory could be bringing some money to the program. Maybe he is. Again, I don't know. We know that the person who funded the funds, the Fuzzies Vodka thing, while Fuzzies has come off the car, have heard that that kind gent is still putting some money into the team. The auto geek thing, I have no idea what that is. I know what it is, but I have no idea what it truly is from a funding standpoint. I don't know how they pay for things. We know that Scuderia Corsa brings some money. Don't know if they're going to be back. Got a very tepid kind of non-answer answer from Scuderia Corsa co-owner Giacomo Mattioli when we spoke in Monterey. I mention all this because... We expect Spencer Piggott to be back. We know Ed Carpenter is going to be back. They appear to have a young Dutch driver who is a genuine badass with seriously committed sponsors that want to be there full-time for reasons I don't understand. The team has not been receptive to making that a reality. Knowing that they're funding, again, a could be a little iffy, not as strong as they wanted it to be. I'm just curious. I'd l- I would welcome learning why the potential of signing this kid to a three-year deal, maybe with options for a fourth and a fifth, but a real commitment. We're going to do something big together. It's not going to happen in one or two years. We're going to build on this. I'm pretty confident Renus has the backers who would say, Cool, let's go, let's do it. Uh, Knowing what I think I know, which could be wrong, but my biggest question of late has been, man, if you've got someone who wants to be with you full-time, is ready to bring the money, can bring the money, can probably bring heightened financial stability to your team to make you better, to allow you to hire more engineers, commission more engineering projects, more R&D stuff to get you closer to the big three. Running two full-time cars for Spencer and Renus, and then having a third part-time car, four ovals for Ed. If I'm looking long-term, that's the decision I make. And this is just putting on my former team manager hat. That's the thing I do that tells me I am making my team better, stronger, more secure. If they don't, there must be a reason they can think of that I can't to not do that. So it makes me think Renus, who I saw more than once chatting with some Carlin folks at Monterey, could be one of many hoping to be with Trevor Carlin's team next year. We'll see what happens. Uh, Yeah, I don't understand this one. I really don't. Uh, One from business-travel. Hey, MP, more of a personal question changing here. How is the new home working out for you and Mrs. Pruitt? 
Best wishes and thoughts are with you and your wife. And I also need to mention here that many of you have uh, added similar well wishes and such, and I haven't read them uh, just because I want to try and keep things as tight as I can. But thank you for sending those in each week as you have this week. It's pretty awesome. It's going okay. Uh, We've had a pretty busy week. I get what, today's Thursday? Yeah, so we've been here a week and a day. Uh, My wife came home last Friday, so tomorrow's a one-week anniversary of that. It's been pretty busy. I, 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 I'm mildly concerned and distressed by the amount of unpacking that hasn't been done. Again, things have been pretty busy, not super on the work front, just more on the appointments here, appointments there, running around a lot of external activities to do. Uh, heck I spent all of Monday in our old town home with that being cleaned and taking things to the garbage, trying to get a car smogged, and then get its tags, and a lot of wrap-up things there. Tuesday was busy doing some other things. Yesterday, we spent most of the day on the road driving here and there, doing all kinds of things. So that has just kept me from being able to unpack a lot. So my goal is to get into that. Hopefully this weekend, I am overdue already on about six or seven racer magazine pieces that again, they should have been filed yesterday. I'm having to start them here. Once we're done, uh, two sizable main features and then some sidebars there. So going to have to work that stuff in and then hopefully, hopefully start doing grand unpacking this weekend. So yeah, it's going well. Um, it's just awesome having my lady home. Um, yeah, going four months without her being at home. Yeah. I wouldn't wish that on anybody who loves their husband or wife and being with them. So thank you for the question and check back in a month. I hope to go from 1% unpacked to two. Uh, let's go to, I forgot my password. Okay. Who says bonsoir Marshall says the windscreen slash air screen slash RBAT topper tests are fast approaching of those with firsthand experience you've heard from what can you tell us it says planning on visiting the barber museum for some observation that's a smart call there um having spoken with william jehoshaphat power yesterday uh he had some really good insights and the positive things that he said i guess publicly or in the quotes that were shared by indycar Will and I know each other well enough and have been friends long enough that when I call and ask for a quote, he doesn't give me the BS. And I know that because he tends to curse throughout his answers, knowing that I'll clean them up. So if he was truly trying to, you know, fudge his answers or, or give me the, the PC version, then yeah. So uh, just in an unfiltered response from DJ Willie P, what he said about we could race this thing tomorrow um, it worked great. I, I, it was pretty much all good for me. There's some little detail things to, to work on. That's the exact thing he said to me. Uh, just went a little bit deeper in mentioning some of the detail items. He said up against the wall when he got really close to say the turn one wall before carving left into the corner. He said there was a little bit of, of 
visual oddities, a um, little bit of something that wasn't perfectly in focus. So he said he wasn't sure. You know, he says maybe if we're on a street course and we're again jammed up against the wall, as you would often do before turning or, or while cornering, he says, could there be some little little areas that might not be perfect? He said, yeah. Uh, he said the one of the main things he spoke about was the tear-offs and how those need to be applied perfectly. Sometimes you might notice if you're watching a sports car race, maybe even a NASCAR race where they have the uh, tear-offs on the windshield, sometimes you'll notice bubbles. And that's just from being applied imperfectly. I don't want to say incorrectly, but just you, know, you try and get all the little bubbles out. Uh, it sounds like there might have been a couple of little ones on uh, the arrow screen on Will's car. And he said those real in those areas where there were little bubbles where things weren't perfectly, you know, all the little air pockets taken out. He says those little areas really were the ones where you had problems. So that makes sense. Another thing he mentioned, which I found to be interesting, was glare. He said there were some glare issues that needed to be addressed said it wasn't just a case of the sun beating down on the arrow screen uh, glass. says it was also from inside the cockpit. says, tried some different things. I said, what about matte? What about going from, you know, a gloss paint finish on top of the, uh, the Delara chassis to matte? And he said, no, actually, we tried some things, tried one thing that was uh, in a matte finish, a non-gloss, and he said, still. There was some glare and reflections coming off of it. Said so the thing that we tried that helped that really fixed the problem was using felt. So actually applying whatever that is, uh, just that kind of soft felt material on top of the dash, on top of the the chassis, says so that took away the glare problem. So just little things like that where he said, you know, this this helped uh, work through some things, highlighted some other issues. He mentioned the air ducting coming into the cockpit. He said, there's some work to be done there. He said it was a really hot day, uh, but it wasn't an issue there. But he said that that's mainly because the work rate inside the cockpit's not super high at Indy. He said on a hot day on a street course, for example, he said, yeah, could really see needing the air ducts at the base of the aero screen to be more optimized. So, I'm not sure if it's a case of adding little, breaking them down into little individual nozzles that you can point where you want, uh, or maybe if where the air was being routed was more above than at his face. So it just seemed like there was a little bit of work there to be done. Mentioned this on Twitter, and this was the thing that blew me away. Is while we were talking, he just mentioned randomly had a bird strike during the test. And I said, what? He said, yeah. Um, and it apparently, you know, this is one of those things. One person on social media is like, I need proof of this. And I think they were joking, but um, it might sound like something that was made up to prove that it was needed. But again, the, this, while this was an on the record conversation that I would use, and I'm using some of this for the print story, you know, this is just will sharing things. Um, mentioning that he had the bird strike and it hit uh, right in the air vent itself. So at the base, you know, right at the top 
running flat along the top of the tub itself uh, and went right into the air duct and kind of shredded itself. And he said uh, his mechanics found the bird's claws, its feet behind his head, rammed into, I guess, the, the rear portion of the arrow screen uh, that kind of extends across and mounts to the roll hoop. So, yeah, um, I'm not saying it would have hit him in the helmet. I'm just saying that if it came down the, the pipeline like that, kind of down the center and went into that region uh, of where the air duct is, without it in place, would it have hit the advanced forward protection device, the AFP, if that was there? Probably. Without the AFP, without the arrow screen, it just sounds like it could have come, it could have hit him in the helmet or could have come close, but it sounds like the very thing they were hoping to avoid by installing the arrow screen sounds like it unwittingly got put to the test and prevented a strike by a bird either in the helmet or pretty darn close in the cockpit. So, um, yeah, and he actually was a little bit. Uh, he was not, I mean, it wasn't a funny thing to him. Uh, he's, although a, a heck of a f- street fighter, uh, he is an animal lover and had mentioned um, how much he was kind of busted up about it. Uh, said, I couldn't kill a fly man, so anytime I kill a birdie, anything, since I can't kill anything, I'm just too much of an animal lover. So it sucks when you kill them. He also mentioned, but the bird wouldn't have known what happened, and just referring to the rate of speed that it happened. Uh, so yeah, um, interesting, uh, interesting there for sure. One thing I need to do though, is to reach out to DJ Willie P's chief mechanic, Matt Yonson, also Blair Julian Dixie's chief mechanic, just to get some insights from the usage, the install usage, more the working with it angle as well. Uh, let's, as we almost done here get to pamela dash henderson says when do you expect some of the off-season dominoes to start falling into place mentioned that askew is likely to be confirmed part-time at ganassi says what about seats at spam and our favorite canadian james hinchcliffe do you expect a net increase in the number of entries next year i think we're going to be up one or two maybe if all things come together I don't think it's going to be a big number. There's a little bit of consolidation, obviously, with Colton Herta moving from HSR to Andretti Autosport. Um, so same number of cars, just shuffled slightly differently there. We do hope that Ganassi does expand. In a perfect world, having a third full-time car for Marcus Erickson and then running young Mr. Askew part-time, I mean, that I think would make everyone super happy. Um, yeah, so I don't think we're going to see a huge jump, but I'm hoping that we got something, uh, as for Hinch, I don't know, uh, the longer things go on, the more I think that doesn't play to his benefit. Um, I think if Hinch is going to land with a Honda team, which has been a very serious initiative, I think think that needs to get locked down pretty darn soon because if it goes on much longer it tells me those teams are looking for more money believe they can get more money developing other leads and to my knowledge 
while I know Hinch has some good backing behind him, I don't think those sponsors could outbid some of those with bigger dollars aiming for the third Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan, or I'll even say, uh, you know, a Ganassi entry or some of the other seats that we know could be in play. So if it's going to happen, if he is going to find a home in a Honda, I think it needs to happen very quickly. Let's go to Insomniac 1995. Says, I forgot to ask you after the IndyCar season finale, but I made a note to remind myself. Lee Diffie and Paul Tracer are mentioning on the broadcast that they heard over the race weekend that Carlin already had a driver confirmed for one of their seats next year. Are you able to comment on how true this is? Says, I don't remember yourself, Robin Miller, or any other IndyCar media types mentioning anything like this since the season finale. Um, well, I did write a story, I believe, on Friday at Monterey with Trevor Carlin saying they expected or they are planning to be two cars plus a third for the 500 also mentioned that they are working with Charlie Kimball to have him come back. Also mentioned Max Chilton is expected to be back to what degree we don't know. So I don't know if it's, if it was a case of uh, diff and PT referring to that, or if they spoke with Trevor and learned something new or different, but I would say most of us have Max Chilton penciled in for one of those two. Just a question of how many races in one of those two. From what I've heard, and I believe it's a pretty solid herd, Max's interests have fluctuated a bit. There was a hope that with the arrow screen, he would want to come back to doing things full time. I've heard that's not the case. Ovals are just not part of his plan. Uh, Indy 500 being the exception. Not sure how much Max is going to do next year. I hope it's a full season. Uh, I really liked seeing how Monterey went for him, where he was quick, seemed to be strong the whole time. Obviously, if we're just talking straight-up race results, you know, Max finishing 13th at Monterey wasn't exactly a celebratory thing, but at Portland and at Laguna, after being off for two races, he just looked really quick and settled, and I think those are really positive things. So uh, I like Max. I know that there are some fans who don't, but when he's comfy and in the right headspace and everything's working properly around him, the guy can be very effective. So just for his sake, for him to come back and just have a better season, I'd love to see it. So I think... That might have been the, the, quote, one driver that they uh, had in mind is coming back. Trevor also thought that uh, Charlie Kimball's primary sponsor, longtime sponsor, Novo Nordisk, might be willing to step up a little bit, knowing that they took a step back in 2019. So maybe that could be a thing. What, I, what I'm happiest to see develop is... I think we were in a place mid-season with Carlin, especially after Chilton decided no more ovals, where there's big question as to how do we get to the next race? Of course, they could spend some of their own money to do that. I'm sure they did. Chili Chilton, uh, co-owner of the team, Max's father, helped make sure that the second entry uh, was on track, so they filled all their leader circle obligations. But there's definitely a feel of 
who can we find to keep both cars on track for a little while there? What I love about what I've heard and what I'm seeing a little bit is I think there could be some real competition to be in one of the Carlin cars. I already mentioned that Renus VK is someone who might be a really nice fit there, and I know I had some discussions there. Marcus Erickson stands out as someone for sure who could be a good fit there if things elsewhere do not pan out. I think there's a couple of drivers for sure. Ed Jones is another one. Um, Some might be part-time. Some might be full-time. I think we could have a scenario with, I'll just call it Max's car, where could we consolidate things? Where since Charlie is the oval, you know, primarily an oval specialist, demonstrationally, that's what he's shown us. Um, could he be kind of the permanent Max on the ovals in Max's car? And then who knows, do some more races depending on how many, if Max does want to do all the road and street courses. I, again, for all, for all we know, Max could be the third driver at the Indy 500 only. Uh, again, not sure, but seems like you could consolidate two drivers, maybe even three into quote Max's car for the season. And seems like they might actually have some nice interest in folks wanting to be full-time in their second car. I've heard of enough folks looking for seats. Not all of them necessarily have the funding for the full year, but I think they could, if they wanted to, run a third car at a number of races. Just because there's more people walking around looking than I anticipated there being at this stage of the year. All right, we've got two. Well, actually, we've got one to go because ended up answering the last question almost at the outset here from L. Jones Arena. Uh, we're going to go to Timely Tough Seven, who says, Mr. Pruitt, how are you doing this fine morning, afternoon, and or evening? Well, I started in the morning and I'm finishing this up. It's now early evening, 5.32 p.m. Says, I want to get your thoughts on the James Hinchcliffe and Honda Canada relationship. It's become a custom at the end of each IndyCar season for the last four years or so now that I remember, where Hinch does a PR tour with Honda Canada throughout Western Canada in particular. Tends to create quite a buzz up here, considering he has helped with the car launches at dealerships, new Honda models being released at trade shows, promoting Honda, their relationship with IndyCar and morning talk shows, etc. Plus, most people up here know him as that Canadian dancing race car driver. What I've found interesting is up to this point, however, is the fact that there has been no announcement or promotion around a James Hinchcliffe and Honda Canada PR tour across parts of Canada. For the last few years, we've always got promotions around Hinch doing a bunch of PR work here with Honda right around the end of the IndyCar season. This year, it's crickets. Not sure if I'm reading too much into this or not, but I was wondering if you could comment on the situation. Does this have to do with the situation next year? Are James's 2020 plans taking up a lot of his time this offseason, i.e. switching teams, that he is unable to do his annual PR tour across Canada with Honda? He says, thanks always for the great podcast. Well, that's kind of you to say. I wouldn't say it's great always, but uh, I aim for good, and then I'm surprised when it's better. I can't give you a, a whole lot that's new here, just because Mr. Hinchcliffe hasn't, really been saying a whole lot about this i know privately very privately the ongoing efforts to try and find a honda home remain i know that with the 
Bathurst 1000 race that's come up for Hinch and Alexander Rossi. They've been down. So what? There was roughly a week break between the end of the season and them heading down under for that. So, you know, the Bathurst race is not this weekend, but next. So this is about two weeks or so. I believe they will be in Australia. Um, You know, that's three weeks or so right there. So basically a week off or most of a week off. Robert Wickens obviously had his wedding. Hinch was there. But, yeah, if you just think about how things have panned out, by the time he gets home, um, you know, there's still time, I guess, but it's not as if he had a completely wide-open schedule. So that could be, could be part of the reason why you haven't seen immediate promotions right away. I know I'm repeating a little bit of what I mentioned just a moment ago about timing, but there's going to be a bit of a cutoff point here, just a practical cutoff point. He has a contract next season to drive for spam using a Chevy power plant. He has told everyone at the team, everyone at Chevy, I'm here with you next year. That's exactly what he should say, exactly what I would advise him to say, exactly what he has done. Everyone there is fully convinced that's where he will be driving, and he may, as I have said and others have said all along. We know that he is wanting to, searching to find a way to stay within the Honda family. But if that does not pan out, well, he's got a year left on his deal, and there you go. Um, I'll just throw this out here. Because I figure by this point, only the hardcore listeners are still listening, and who knows? Keep it between us. Try not to post this on the interwebs. During the Monterey weekend, I think it was Saturday, maybe? I don't know. Maybe it was Friday. Uh, posted a tweet saying, hey, there could be some really significant news coming. I'm told there could be some really significant news coming down the pipeline. Might not happen, but waiting and watching to see if it's going to come to pass. And I'm trying to think how I should phrase this. This is the trying to remember to use the word allegedly when stating something that you kind of sort of know to be fact, but you want to still present it as allegedly, possibly, to not make it sound more serious than what it truly is or was. Allegedly, there were were thoughts and plans to possibly announce Hinch's formal relationship with Honda. That being something that came as a result of conversations where there could have been an announcement over the Monterey weekend that a split, a separation has been achieved, freeing Mr. Hinchcliffe from the final year of his contract, allowing him to join the Honda family for next season. I guess we could also say remain in the Honda family next season. Uh, I don't want to say there were solid sources on this. Uh, there was uh, a lot more than that. It wasn't just, oh, I heard this in the bathroom from a guy. Well, wait a minute. You might be asking why I'm hanging out in the bathroom trying to find rumors. We'll leave that alone right there. We're just going to park that and forget it. Um, 
yeah, this wasn't a rumor. It was a, hey, keep your ears tuned. There might be something coming that you really would want to pay attention to and write about. And it was uh, efforts to hashtag free hinge. Um, this part, a little bit of an assumption, but I've heard this from a couple of sources that there might have been discussions on, hey, so buying your way out of the final year of your engine supply contract, why don't we maybe modify that a little bit? So maybe it's less of a financial thing for you, and in exchange you let our man hinch out of the final year of his contract, and that would make it a lot easier for him to find a home within our camp. Didn't hear that. Uh, makes me think that did not happen or makes me think maybe those conversations are still ongoing and they didn't reach the culmination they expected to. But I know this is a little bit left field on Honda Canada and promotion stuff and whatnot, Mr. or Mrs. Timely Tough 7. You never know with many internet screen names. But I can tell you that I started writing a story, didn't get too far on it, just wrote the bones of it, of Hinchcliffe released from final year of contract, expected to be confirmed at a Honda team. Didn't happen at Monterey. In terms of it being announced, leads me to believe that either didn't go anywhere or they just needed more time to talk through it, walk through it, negotiate, get contracts drawn up. Who knows? So it could be dead altogether. It could be ongoing. I'm not sure. But for those, and there are some, even in the media, as I've mentioned, who just hook, line, and sinker, take whatever they're told at face value. This isn't one of them. And that's not saying anything negative about Hinch, about anything. This just, you know, there's playing the game, saying all the right things, which you should absolutely do. And working quietly as you should also do to see if you can change your situation to the one that you want and we were primed and ready to possibly report that staying with honda was going to happen Um, that wouldn't be (laughs) that wouldn't be happening if there wasn't something going on so what i can't answer what i can't tell you is if this is still ongoing if it has fallen apart, won't happen. If Hinch is going to indeed be a Chevy guy next season, don't know, just don't know. But I know that there have been ongoing efforts to try and keep him in the Honda family. And I do look forward to finding out what the young man's future might be because that's the question, right? That's the off-season question. What happens to James Hinchcliffe? Is it just, quote, boring, staying with the team he's with, going to be driving for them, no news, uh, just staying? Well, then that means that other options didn't pan out, didn't work out, uh, whether there wasn't enough sponsorship to land the ride that he wanted or couldn't negotiate, whatever it was. There's Pato Award. There is Marcus Erickson. There is Santino Ferrucci. There is, there's all kinds of is. There's all kinds of stuff. So can't wait to report on some of that when we are able to. And we're done. We are done with 
your Q&A, Week in IndyCar. We're at two and a half hours. Went a little faster than I expected, even though it was recorded in two parts. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is brought to you by Cooper Tires, Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. Please be sure to like whichever question you like the most or get people to like yours so you can get free stuff from us. And thank you again to Bell Racing Helmets USA. We'll speak to you next week. I don't know who our guest is going to be. I would recommend, though, since I haven't even put an ounce of thought into it, send in some ideas. Who haven't you heard on the show in a while that you would like to? Who have you never heard on the show that you've wanted to? Could be modern person. Could be a legend. I was thinking about reaching out to Danny Sullivan. Um, he and I spent a good while catching up at Monterey and had a blast. Uh, but who knows? Got any ideas? Send me a note. I'll see what I can make happen. We come back to you next week on The Week in IndyCar, the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. <laughs>